spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the Ascend podcast, we sit down with Anthony Anaxagoro. He is a poet, an artist, a writer and an educator and he's wrote several books that cover many different topics all the way from history, politics, religion, war and then also encouraging young people to speak out and voice their own points of views. And this really was a special podcast for me because I can actually remember about four or five years ago when I was starting to wake up, let's say, and see the world in a different way, I came across this guy and he was speaking on an interview. And at that time, he was a young guy. He still is young, but he's a little bit older now. But anyway, I came across him at the time and he was a young guy and he was a very relatable guy speaking with so much presence and knowledge and wisdom. And the way he was speaking about and seeing the world really spoke to me within and made me question a lot of my patterns in my life. And he really is somebody who sees the world in a very interesting way and uses his language and passion to really express what is going on in his heart. And he's definitely somebody, in my opinion, who really is using his art form to inform and just to make people pause and question many different beliefs that we embody in our lives. And he's definitely somebody who I would love to sit down with in a room all day and just speak about many different topics. And I was, we were so honoured to sit down in person and meet him. Anyway, and like I just said there about sitting in person with Anthony and having a conversation and sharing with you all as well at the same time, this is something that me and Chris really want to keep doing from now on on the podcast. We really do see that this is part of our evolution of this whole movement. We know that the only way we're going to take this to a bigger level and reach more minds is to add the in-person element. But not only that, we also want to start to video all of these conversations too. So not only can you hear these in-person conversations, but visually you can see them too. And behind the scenes of this podcast, we really are working hard and putting and trying to really put this in place for you all. We really are working on getting in place some very interesting people. So a lot of these in-person elements are obviously going to take up a lot more of our time, plus travel costs, plus renting a place to to record and getting some new equipment as well up our game and as you know on this podcast we've never asked you for anything we've never bombarded you with stupid advertisements or products but we are now putting out to you that we are at a point with this podcast where we really need your help to push this to the next level and if you want to help us please become a patreon member and you can subscribe to many different award tiers we have a two dollar award tier all the way to a fifty dollar award tier and in return as well as supporting the podcast, you also get access to a Patreon-only private page and community. And on that page as well, we also have lots of added bonus rants and conversations. And the latest one that we just uploaded actually is called Could Einstein Fix a Washing Machine? And if you haven't asked yourself that question already, you should throw yourself into a black hole or even worse, go on a marathon of watching the news for 24 hours straight. <laughs> But anyway, if you want to hear that long hour rant 
about Einstein fixing a washing machine and many others as well, please check out our Patreon page and support the podcast. It really would mean the world to me and Chris. So anyway, without further ado, let's jump this one. Anthony Naxagoro, enjoy. I think it's beautiful because I remember at that time when I did discover your uh, poetry and when you were speaking on that interview, it was um, it was a time where I was sort of I was coming through the early development as a young as a young child, young young child, young teenager. I was about fourteen, fifteen years old, and I can remember. I think it was like you, um, Akala, and um, who was your one as well? I can't remember who the other one was, but you were you and Akala were definitely two very influential people. And then from there, when I was looking at your, uh, I was looking at your poetry and I was looking at Akala's music and stuff like that. Mm. I was actually, I mean, you might find this a lot with the younger people who do discover you and find your work and stuff like that. But I actually found that a lot of times of in not just listening to your po- poetry and listening to Rakala's music, I was actually getting the lyrics and then writing the lyrics down, deciphering the lyrics. And what I actually found a lot, and um, I've, it's quite interesting because I really want to tell, tell this to you because I think this is a, um, it's a good thing for you, is that what you likes of you and Akala did to me is that because in a lot of your poetry and Akala's poetry and things like that, you're very um, methodical with your thinking. You're very, you leave like little seeds and little nuts and crannies so that someone like a young child can listen at that and go and see see if it's a word like um whatever it is um martin luther king something whatever it is some sort of name a gem like that and you can go and look and research and find and discover you see one little one little word it sends you down a rabbit hole i mean do you find that with does younger people generally who come across your work find that and realize that you're sort of you're more methodical in your thinking and it sends them down a rabbit hole and yeah i think the idea is to try and create art that is yeah, that is influential, that it is thought-provoking, yeah. but then at the same time, it's referential. <clears throat> but the idea is that you have references within like Martin Luther King, whatever it might be, or a date or yeah. a battle or an event or something like that. But the idea is that you have these um, references in a piece of writing that are compelling enough for someone to want to go and research it. Like I could put some really abstract niche event or reference in a poem people will just brush over it they'll just be like I don't really care but if you make the writing engaging and exciting enough and include these references people are going to be like I want to know what that means there's also the idea that other thing that I think about is how someone that looks like me or that talks like me or that is the same gender as me knows something that another person of that same um, construction wants to know as well Yeah. so it's like he's my age how does he know that I want to know that as yeah, well yeah. whereas if it was like a 60 70 year old man you'll be like kind of that's a given like, I expect that person to and it makes you a bit lazy you're not really going to respond to it in the same way it was when I feel that people of my generation are using these references to make art be it music poetry dance film whatever it is it then propels me to want to go and learn about it do you, do you ask a good point that do you actually find that um I mean, Michael, the other way for you, I don't know, but do you find that with, when you do poetry, do you find that more people actually relate to you or does it go the other way? Or is there like sort of boundaries between the age mm. groups? Because I think that's an interesting point you know, there. I definitely think that people of my generation, or from people that reach out, I don't know if people in, in the generation above mine, whether they reach out and let you know these things. Yeah. The, obviously, that whole idea of communicating how someone feels might be a thing that our generation do more than my dad's generation. 
I don't know if they just hear something. I mean, yeah, that's interesting. But tech, I don't know if they're that tech savvy where they're going to like send an email mm. or write a YouTube comment or stuff like this. You know, I think that's more something that we kind of do. But then at the same time, there's things to be said about how people respond to things, who's saying them, how they're saying it and why they're saying it. And I think that really has to get taken into consideration because that really does help. Yeah, I think, um, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, I think as well, um, a lot of what, you, what you're what expressing, Anthony, is a different type of voice. I mean, you're speaking to the younger generation, whereas a lot of the younger generation who go through the schooling process, the whole concept is you're, you, you get taught, you listen, and we tell you the truth. There, there is no creative thought on their behalf. There is just like a sense of this is what's happening. Yeah. This is what you learn. But whereas you and many other people, you give like, um, you let them do the learning. You let them go into that creative thought. I mean, a lot of creativity in my my belief, I think schooling is a lot to do with like um, the problem in the younger generation right now. Yeah. Not just like um, the culture, because we've talked a lot about how, before this podcast, about how culture kind of like brings this, community aspect down but yeah. I think the whole schooling process as well is like we're not taught like things that's we're not taught things like how to manage our money we're not taught about finance we're not taught about how to breathe how to meditate how to calm ourselves how mind body soul yeah. we're completely void of a lot of things well independently we all need yeah and, and I think that's one of the issues that people have in their later lives while a lot of people in the west have these existential crises is because of the fact that we're not given the resources and the tools to deal with things such as grief, yeah. as death, as, you know, like divorce, separation, all these very real, very profound things we're not taught. And people end up spending hundreds and hundreds of pounds on counselling and therapy to try and overcome some of these issues that they have. And I think that part of the problem with that is that the education system is not concerned with people's well-being, with their mental health. They're concerned with what can you contribute to an economic system and how well can you contribute to that system. And then we'll, we'll reward you monetarily depending on how well you contribute to the system. Yeah. And that's it. How you fare in the meantime within yourself is irrelevant. We don't really care. And that's why things such as art and, well, the humanities in general, like they don't teach the humanities anymore. Like you don't really get that. I mean, you might touch on it in philosophy and whatever else when you get to university, but as a 14, 15 year old, it's very important that we have these discussions around, I think divorce, particularly poverty, you know, uh, yeah. domestic violence, masculinity, like these are things that need to be addressed. This is why you're having the whole Me Too thing. This is why you have uh, bigotry, xenophobia. It's because these discussions are just not had. And if you leave it mm. to the tabloids, then you've got a big problem. Yeah. I want to say something as well, because when Chris brought up the, the school as well, I know that you, um, I think you mentioned somewhere that you were, are you still working in, in yeah, schools? Yeah, still working in schools. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you find within that, when you're in that, when you are in schools and things like that, do you find a lot of time that, that creativity the creativity of the of the person is being like sort of squished down to a certain degree because it seems to be that a lot of like a lot of the system uh, a lot of the, the, the schooling system is sort of trying to it puts everyone in the same box instead of like recognizing the individual yeah. in individualness in, in each in, the, in each person i mean do you find that like the creativity seems to be getting squished down out of people or yeah it- i mean it depends how we think about creativity i think it's important to not kind of not create this homogenous simplistic idea of what creativity is obviously 
we're all creative in some shape or form. I think being artistic is different from being creative, if that makes sense. Like you might have someone who works in a marketing department and you need to come up with a creative strategy to Mm. sell a brand of gardening gloves. Like that involves a level of creativity. Whereas to be artistic, to communicate something that is multifaceted, that is complex, that is nuanced through the medium of art and expression is very different and I think that when you tell people especially young people that you are expressing yourself all the time you're expressing yourself through the way that you talk through the way that you dress through the way that you walk through the way that you comb your hair all these are forms of expression everything on the planet is expressing itself in some way or form and if you let them know that that's what the kind of integral mechanism that is found within art if that's what it is is just a form of expression then everything becomes permissible and i think it gives them it validates their own humanity and then they start thinking about ways in which they want to express anger confusion uh, joy happiness all these different things through language physicality movement sound vibration which is what all the arts are like yeah. when you break it down so Yeah, I think that that's my main mission is to just make them aware that being an artist and being a creative person kind of are two separate things, if that makes sense. And then to to say that I think being an artist comes more naturally than being creative. If that makes sense, yeah, yeah. That's a good I point. thought it was beautiful that in that. Do you want to- yeah, I was just going to jump in. I was going to say something as well. I mean, like you said, there messages, and that's a beautiful message, by the way. And I th- and a lot of people can resonate with it at the time. And I think what I'd like to hope for, anyway, is that a lot of young people do resonate, especially the, at the age of when you're truly finding who you are, at the age of about thirteen, to about sixteen, probably even later, to be honest. But yeah. I like to know as well, like, um, how much of your message in current culture is is getting held back because it's not like it doesn't fit the agenda of the society of what what society wants like yeah. the whole commercialized industry based indoctrination into the system yeah because you completely against that how much is yeah i mean um, i i don't come at it from a puritanical perspective i think that purists in, in the purists that i know are impractical in in the sense where they have a philosophy, they have a, a set of principles that they live by, but a lot of the time they're impossible to implement because of the way that the system is set up. Mm-hmm. And by becoming a purist, you end up judging everyone quite harshly. And that's in my opinion, that's counterproductive. That doesn't so what I do is I'm fully aware of the system. I'm aware of my own conditioning. I'm aware that I've been brought up born and raised in London in a hyper-capitalist society. I value city things. I do city things. I say city things. Like, and I'm fully aware of that. Mm. I think that where I come from it is not from a place of kind of righteousness or kind of virtue, virtual signaling, if that makes like virtue signaling. It's more to do with understanding how something works and working into that thing in a much more... Um, humane way in, in a way that benefits for the that is for the greater good that doesn't necessarily mean I want everyone to be you know Mother Teresa or Gandhi or whatever it might be but it just means that you let people know that there are other options outside of the me 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 yeah I- and to have to have that in mind but then also to apply a certain level of critical thought to the system in which you inherit 
Yeah, I love that. It's beautiful by the way that really is. I was trying to analyse where you were saying that as well, and it was actually viewing how I sort of how I sort of dissect my own learning patterns and things like that. Beautiful. Do you? I mean, with your um, poetry and things like that, has your has one of your focuses? I mean, I know you've been doing this for a long time now, but was one initially was one of your focuses to actually to get when you got into poetry was it to shift people's thinking and stuff like that, or was it just sort of just because you were just tapping into something that you yeah. you really loved? Yeah, I mean, again, it's that rectitude that people often assume comes with moralists. And I, I, I used to kind of think to myself, am I a moralist? Am I someone who takes the moral high ground, who judges other people harshly because they don't live their life in the way that I do? And I think when you first become aware of things, mm-hmm. there is that possibility where you slip into this moral high ground, this harsh judgment, and everyone is wrong and you are right and because you've just stumbled on this revelation and you adopt that but I think now that I'm you know in my mid-30s I kind of I see things for what they are and I understand that people are are, are complex and, and they're vast and their life is complicated and difficult a lot of the time and it's not fair to make people feel bad because this is what they choose to eat or this is where they choose to go on holiday or this is what they choose to wear um so I'm not, I wouldn't regard myself as a kind of a truther. Like there's this word truther that gets like branded around and people say, oh, you're a truther. I don't know what that means. For me, a truther is someone who is predominantly under the age of 40 and obsessed with control and power. And they want to know how power is constructed and how it's sustained and what you can do to combat that. I, don't, I think it's not as binary as these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Yeah. We're on this kind of, you know, yeah. a mission, this moral mission to set the world to right. Like, I think it's much more complicated than that. But I think when you're young and naive, it's very easy to see the world in that way mm. through the optic of good and bad. But then as the older that you get, the more conversations you have, the more you learn, the more you understand, you realise that there's just layers and layers to this thing. Yeah, I think everyone's looking for that simplistic view of like, this is black, this is white, and this is what's good, this is what's wrong, and this, everyone wants that whole simplistic value, but it's when, like, we really start, like, looking in the side, and we can start, like, asking ourselves our own questions, avoid of any sort of external influence, and we have to ask ourselves, is this right in my eyes? Yeah. Because to me, um, when you give the idea of a truth there, I always thought, like, we are, the, like, a truth podcast. We try to express yeah, ourselves yeah. the truth. But the more we've done these, the more we've found out... We don't know shit. We don't know shit, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's difficult because it's all subjective, you know? Like, one person's truth is another man's fallacy. So, you, you kind of, the more you go into it, the more you realise that there is no such thing as one empirical truth. There are many different truths. It all just depends on... I mean, now we start going into kind of logic and reason and the kind of the systems and patterns around that, but it just makes me approach with caution the word truth Mm -hmm. and what that represents and what that means. I think that, you know, from a philosophical sense, it's almost like a misnomer. Like it doesn't doesn't really exist. And my truth has changed. My truth, the, the truth that I hold now is not the truth that I held 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's good that. So the fact that truth is constantly in a state of flux for the individual suggests that it's reflective of their learning and their own journey. And I think that's what we have to be aware of. When people get obsessed with truth and they hide, that, that becomes an ideology and that yeah. becomes a way to live your life. And I think that that stunts growth. 
if we are organic people and we're constantly on a journey, we're constantly learning and discovering, be that in kind of a, a heavily concentrated way or in a very small but still progressive way, I think to try and limit yourself to a truth is counterintuitive. Yeah. Is there any, I was actually wondering when you were saying that, I love that by the way as well, is there any, is there any sort of truths in your life? Because when, you when you were describing that as when you, when you were talking about there, me and Chris, we've both gone through the same aspect of where we've had certain beliefs in the, in the past and that we know now looking back we sort of laugh at them because it was sort of ridiculous yeah ridiculous yeah yeah. but have you had it can can, is there any in your mind that sticks out in your head that you had that maybe you look back now and think oh that's ridiculous i'll laugh at yeah i mean as a kid i mean i i was i would say i was religious up until the age of 17 18 i come from um a christian orthodox family and i was born and raised in that so obviously i inherit those practices by default um although i remained skeptical up until the age 17 18 and some of the things i said as a theist during that period looking back now i was just like that's absurd but it wasn't absurd because of the fact the ideology was absurd it was absurd from a, a logical sense it was like that doesn't that's just how where that part of your brain that almost counteracts that abstract part wasn't present and it where was that criticality it didn't exist yeah. uh, whereas now obviously like you can have that same discussion and you have a rational explanation for this or for that and i think that's kind of the stuff that's changed there's other principles that i still you know systems of racism um classism those two things have always been racism has always been something that i've been um kind of more than uh, not i'm not say the word obsessed obsessed sounds a little bit um, kind of secondary but it's something I've always been passionate about since a very young age and what's happened over the years obviously learning and researching about the history of racism and history of race as a, as a kind of social construct um, that's broadened my understanding so you, we can have truth that's expanded as opposed to reduced yeah. Yeah. and over depending on where it's coming from and the levels of research that you do to expand or grow that truth oh. I'll somehow ask you and touch on as well. Actually, is a sweet, you know, when, especially when you were probably a bit younger as well. And like I said, like we're just talking about there, how your beliefs change and stuff like that. But not not from only me, your beliefs change. It's for me as well as where you get your inspiration from and stuff like that. I would love to just for you to speak on about how your inspiration, sort of your fuel for your poetry, has actually shifted. I mean, was it in the past? Was it more sort of? I mean, just I don't even know. I don't want to make any sort of assumptions. But what was it in the past compared to sort of now? I mean, has that changed or? Yeah, it's changed massively. It's almost like it's a complete departure from where I was before and how I wrote and that process of of writing and generating ideas has completely shifted. I think when I was younger, if you went back five years, I, I wrote predominantly from my mouth. So I would write the poetry whilst speaking it at the same time because oh. um, I'd always envisioned an audience in front of me yeah I like that so if if it has to be that communicative it has to have uh that verbal quality to it and the only way that i could really tune in to that rhythm would be to say it whilst i was writing it and then delete so you know you're literally you feel kind of exacerbated by the end of it because you're just like i've just been talking to myself for like three hours what but you're you're whispering you're mumbling the words and writing them down um 
and now obviously I've changed the way in which I use the page like my relationship with paper and the page has, has changed so you that that obviously impacts the craft and the way in which you're you're going to write so I write around the page now now my audience is the page the stage is that thing and so you work around that that doesn't mean that it doesn't have that communicative quality yeah. to it it just means that you're writing I, I think in a much more intense way you're you, you're intensifying the language for it to work that well on a pa- on paper yeah. yeah how 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 do you feel like modern poetry is being perceived right now in society um again poetry is a very broad church and i think to try and whittle it down to one thing to a singular thing is um is is not sensible and i I think that a lot of people do try and do that i think we do that with everything Mm. you know people listen to i don't know they listen to rihanna and say oh you know i'm not into this kind of music but what does that even mean like there's many that kind of music occupies many different sounds yeah, it definitely does. You know what I mean? And and all, like jazz. I had a friend chat with it. I'm, I'm a big jazz lover and I spoke, was chatting with my friend the other day and he said, I don't know how you listen to this rubbish. It just sounds like a bunch of trumpets all smashing into each other. Yeah. And I was just like, that's what it sounds like to you. But to me, I'm hearing something very yeah. different. Um, so I think that with poetry, it all just depends on one, what you want from it. Uh, why do you go to it? With any art form, why are you here? You ask yourself that question, what do you want from the art? What do you want it to do? Do you want it to stimulate? Do you want it to evoke? Do you want it to instruct? Like, what, what what's the point? Why are you here? Um, and then secondly, how able are you to participate with what is happening in that dialogue between the painting and the viewer mm-hmm. or the poem and, you know, the poet and the reader? Like, what's happening there? And I think that it is about dialogue. It is about a communication. And there are some... Levels of communication, methods of communication that can become quite obfuscating for miscellaneous reasons. And there are other levels of communication that are very basic. So Instagram poetry being, you know, one of the most popular forms at the moment with like Rupi Kaur selling millions of books and, and other poets doing world tours just off the back of their getting major book publications, yeah. just off the back of their Instagram accounts says that communication is at the essence of this thing. And some poets make a conscious decision to write in a way that they know isn't going to be, it doesn't have mass appeal. But then there is that level of integrity that says, but this is what I want to do. This is how I want to use language and this is how I want to write. Whereas you can either go the opposite way and say, I'm going to write something very basic, something very emotive, but very surface. And I know that it's going to be really popular, but then that, I'm not being true to myself. Yeah. yeah. For, for you, do you actually feel that, the, that it should be the artist's job to do that? Like, do you feel it should be the artist's job to actually tap into that energy or whatever you want to call it and to actually having a, I wouldn't say the word, agenda's not the right word, but maybe just have a bit more thinking behind their poetry to try and shift people's thinking? Or, I don't, I, I, I think, yeah, I think this idea of the, the poet's job or the artist's job, I think that's, quite detrimental uh, i think that artists in general whatever art form they're working in whatever discipline there's a lot of pressure put on them to be a particular way yeah. or to uphold a particular standard mm-hmm. i think that 
as we said at the beginning, this is an expression yeah. and you're entitled to express yourself any way that you wish. This isn't, we're, we're not the police. There's no one here to tell you how you should. And there was, if you asked me five years ago, I would have said with all the conviction yeah. in my heart that 100% every artist should have this standpoint, should take yeah. this point of view. This is what we need to be doing. But then I realized that we're human beings and some people are not moralists. Like then their job is not to moralize. Their job is does not revolve around trying to set the world straight. Their I, job is. I'm to actually. Yeah, it's funny because I was guilty. As soon as you said that, there, I'm guilty of that. I'm absolutely guilty of that, that. Understanding that, I still, I still have a bit more rawness inside as well. I still think that that should be the job. Mm. But when you were saying it, though, it actually made us realize it. Maybe in that that uh, belief that I hold in my mind that that should be done, it actually takes away the beauty of the just the poor, the poor uh, sorry, the, the person actually just expressing whatever art form it is of what they just want to do in their that's heart. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I think to try and put, um, to try and put the reins on that and say this is a restriction, this is what you can, or even a responsibility, yeah. is silly. I really do think it's silly, which, I mean, I, I don't think that, that some art is unhealthy. Like to, but then society is unhealthy, and these people are like they're not born in a vacuum. They don't live in a vacuum. They're they're responding to stimuli that is omnipresent. So I think that just by having that very notion, you can't blame people for making vacuous, superficial, belligerent art yeah. because that's what society is. You <laughs> yeah, know? This yeah. is not Mary Poppins. I think it's. I think what I'm thinking of is um, I'm thinking when we're on when we're looking at the idea of moralists and stuff like that, um, I was thinking in the, in like a global context about the individual itself, all of us, if we put it together. And I was thinking, do, do we all have to have a sense of like purpose and well-being and survive, like to really push yeah. forward, like something new in society, some, some kind of growth, some kind of like evolve in the next year? Because I was thinking, yeah, there might be people out there who were, who are very, um, who just want the whole nine to five, look after the family and to have a nice pension at the end of their life. And fair enough, if that's your life, if that's what you want to do, that's in, that's good for you. But I, th I think there should also be a bit of like, to give something more, yeah. to, to have this like power and the sense of well-being, a sense of self-worth where you can actually feel like, you know what, I want to give back a little bit back to society, even I, if it is just a message. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that having that instilled in us, in our thought, that idea of, pl of pluralism, is very important, um, which would again would stem from education. We haven't got that at all in our education system. It's all very hyper individualistic, which is a ramification byproduct of or symptom of capitalism. So, whichever way you want to look at it, you should have that. But then we shouldn't try to standardize personality types either by saying that everyone needs to behave like this, everyone needs to behave like that. We're many different people having many different experiences at the same time mm -hmm. so i think to understand that and to appreciate those artists who do make art that contains kind of a moral fiber uh, and to appreciate them and to give them the space and the platforms that they require is essential to making this happen because like you say some people don't have the capacity to make that they don't have the desire so they have the desire to sit and listen and take things in and absorb and intellectualize ideas. And that's fine. That's the job. And then art obviously provokes, it becomes the catalyst for that experience. Yeah. And that's it. And But then at the same time, it doesn't mean you can't have people in a nightclub dancing to bullshit music. Yeah. Like if, if that's what that purpose of that art is to serve that experience. You don't, want, you don't have to listen to it all the time. And obviously 
if your girlfriend or boyfriend has just left you, you're not going to be listening to that kind of stuff. You'll be listening to something that matches the mood. But because we're having multiple experiences yeah. at the same time, there has to be something for everything. Yeah, I think there's something beautiful in, in both of them worlds. Well, I think I've realised that. Like I was, like I said before, I was a bit raw, and I was seeing like it, I was, a lot of time. I thought, oh, it's just this weird. This is the only weird it's got to be. But within, within, we. I mean, we had an example where we were on a night out. And um, we were. This is like the polarity sort of thing, of where we were. We did some in, other in-person interviews at um, in Birmingham, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, we were sort of in that field of like searching for truth and seeing this, and, and really, in, we were really indoctrinated in our thinking at that time with interviews and sort of trying to shift people's conscious minds. But then on the on the night, we went out for a night out, and we were listening to sort of that trashy music or whatever you want to call it. I wouldn't call that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. I'm just using that as a reference. And um, it was actually within us having a night out that we learnt more lessons than sort of our quote-unquote normal sort of interacting with sort of people who it's hard to explain do you, do you get what, just what I mean yeah there's, so there's a polarity where it's both you need to play in both worlds I think there is oh sorry I was just going to jump in there I was just going to say I think there is an expression of like the, the yin and the yang inside of us I mean there is this righteous righteous leader inside maybe inside me anyway there is this righteous leader but there's also this guy who just wants to sit and watch a bit Netflix marathon yeah, right. and I'm trying to balance both of them I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm reading a lot of like books at the minute like I've got a book on there called Deep Work and I read The Compound Effect and these are books which really really emphasize like stuff like Netflix a complete even 1% distraction can see you so far off course of your goals and then I'm starting to feel guilty for the fact that I'm merely just like a Netflix show now and again <laughs> but yeah and, and that's the problem is that because we live in such a concentrated space, we feel guilty for anything recreational. And again, this yeah. is this idea that we're constantly having to work on something that the mind does need a release. It needs downtime. Like I'm of the same uh, situation where I can't watch television, not because I don't enjoy it, but because I feel guilty. Yeah. I'm like, I should be working. I should be reading. I should be writing something, working on an abstract or, you know, a story or poem. I need to be there. And then when I get there, I think, yeah, fuck, I'm going to go. And I open up the laptop and I start and I think my, my brain's fried. Yeah. Like I'm nah, actually tired. We've been like that. We've been do, like do that. You, yeah. Do you actually find, um, we've talked about this and I would love to see your thoughts on this. When you actually, because we, we're in the same position as you where we feel guilty when we watch a certain program or whatever it is. But there's quite often the times where we've talked about this, where we find we can watch something that's say absolute we that you, you, that you sort of your mind perceives as crap, but you just get an enjoyment from. But you can see other lessons within that that you wouldn't normally see. Do you exactly. find? Do you find that? And I think that's what is key to take away here yeah. is that your mind never switches off; it just works at different intensities and at different yeah. frequencies. And I think that even when you do watch trash TV your mind is taking stuff from it. Like there is things happening all the time. Like you're dissecting, you're analyzing, you're thinking, you're pulling things apart, putting things back together. That's an experience. And I think all that is conducive to the overall outcome of what it is you want to do. Uh, There's a friend of mine, uh, Jack Underwood, who's a brilliant poet. um, And he sent me an email a few months, about two, three months ago. And in the email, I was saying to him, I don't really know how to switch off. Like, I don't know how to turn off the mind. Like, I'm constantly feeling inadequate. I need to achieve more. I need to do more. I need to write more. I need to do, like, this whole idea of being prolific and and contributing and feeling that sense of self-worth was driving me crazy to a point of hyper-anxiety. And he said one thing in his response that 
I actually copy and pasted it and put it up on top of my writing desk. And he said, some days I sit at home with some pot noodles and I watch Rambo. (laughs) And I make that part of my professional life. That is part of my job to do that because I know that when I do do that, the poems that are going to come the next day are going to be twice as good as the poems that came the day before. Yeah. Well, Rambo is a good film. Ram- yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I probably would have switched Rambo for something else. But, but, and I don't eat pot noodles. But I, you know, the, the, the point that he's making, I think, um, is incredibly profound. And to have it put in that way where you give yourself permission to be a yeah. slob but you're not being a slob. You're not being lazy for the sake of inertia. You're being that for the sake of letting things marinate, letting things crystallize. And you need that downtime, the slob time, to be able to think clearly. And you do like think when when you do when you go for the walk or literally after the Netflix film, you, you sit back and you're just like, I've had an idea, yeah. bang, and then something happens, and then straight away you're at it. Again. That's usually the case as yeah, well, isn't it? That's what I'm saying. And like these books as well, um, like Deep Work by Carl, um, like um, Carl Newport, mm-hmm. he talks about how Carl Jung used to go into these deep periods of isolation as well, and he talked about he uses the example of J.K. Rowling. I mean, how she isolated away from any social media just to write um, the Harry Potter uh, books. She had, had like a Twitter feed had one, um, one tweet, and that was. Um, hi, my name's J.K. Rowling. I'm not going to be on here much. I've got writing to do. And that was it. Mm. And she's just fully focused on that work. And in these periods of isolation, I think there is a time where periods of isolation and just you, the mind and the work can come together and you can create this type of flow state and you can get so much done. But then again, like when you talk there, there is this part of you which feels completely fried. Yeah, And it is just the balance. I mean... Uh, London is in, isn't the type of city where you could find a lot of balance in my eyes. Not at all. I mean, we're so, we're overstimulated. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're fed so many messages. We have so many options that we forget who we are. Like we're giving so much of ourselves in different ways all the time that you sit down at the end of the day and you're just like, who actually am I? Like, I, I, the, I mean, I understand that people are, you know, they're made up of multitudes, but then at, at the same time, you have to ask yourself, how much of this am I curating? How much am I giving to Instagram? How much am I giving to Twitter? How much am I giving to Facebook? And how much is left for me? And before you know it, you're cut into so many different pieces and being flung in so many different ways and being manipulated at the same time by the messaging that comes through all these platforms, not just advertising. I'm talking about lifestyle. I'm talking about choice, about money, success, happiness. This is all signaling. All this is being performed online by various people and public figures and whatever else that it puts you into a further state of of neurosis and you end up just feeling massively anxious uh, massively overwhelmed and all you want to do is just do a bit of writing yeah. and sometimes turning off is the most difficult thing to do it is as well yeah, just we, pressing one button yeah we definitely struggle with that I think everyone's struggling with that but it's like it's this like one button though it's been like you could be conditioned from um, six o'clock in the morning where you're just thinking about picking up your phone or like turning off the alarm on your phone you can't see looking at your phone. That conditioning is just like set you up. Do it's not turn anxiety, off your phone. Man. You're going to miss out. You'll miss it's out. It's an anxiety. Out. Like it, you feel it. Like you feel, I don't even know if it's the FOBO thing anymore. Like I, I, I feel that it's something 
particularly with us, I've been using an iPhone since the iPhone 1 came out. Yeah. Like, since the beginning. I don't really know how... That's, like, over, that's nearly 10 years. I don't really know how else to be. Like, oh. if you took the thing away now... Like I wake up in the morning sometimes, and my, there's a guy called... A poet called Rob Orton, and he calls it the Triangle of Hope. Where you go from Twitter to Facebook to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. and and you do it, and you're just and you think to yourself, what am I doing? Like it's half, half an hour has gone by, and I'm just going from one thing to next to next to next. And what am I looking for? I've read the news now. I know what's going on. Like not much is going to change within the next fifteen minutes. Um, but then you you ask yourself, what what am I doing? And like you say, time is wasted. But then when you do go into those periods of isolation, there's writers retreats, there's all kinds of different things that writers do, that artists do, to put themselves in uh, an idea incubator. And the way that you can help that is, yeah, turn this stuff off. But then what I find is that I actually get ideas from here, like from the social media. Like I get, things pop into my head and I can make that into a poem. If your brain is scanning, if you're kind of yeah. sifting through, um, filtering for stimulus, um, then social media can become a positive thing. Yeah, I think. I think there's a. I love that. I think there's a balance within that as well, though, because mm. I've realised that. As yes, you can you can use because I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like looking through sort of any people's Instagram feeds and getting inspiration for my own creativity or whatever it is. But I actually had an uh, instance. It was this was three days ago where the internet went off where we live. You know about this, didn't you? Yeah, and the yeah. internet went off. And um, I felt there was I felt that like something a part of us had gone. It was like it was only three days. I mean, but three days for in this modern day world now where we're so indoctrinated on mobile phones and internet and stuff like that, and just having it on hand where we go to it straight away. It it feels like a it's like something rip a part of you is being ripped out of you. Yeah. But within that, it made me realize the balance of like how actually fucked up we are as a society, and it made me it made me actually think in my head of ask the question what are we what are we actually really becoming is this the right direction for us I mean do you ever ask yourself that question is this the right direction for us I, I don't think that, I think you know it's, it's within the human capacity to to grow yeah. and to whether you see that growth as a positive or a negative the idea of progression of moving forward and never being stagnant is something that humans have done since mm-hmm. well, the beginning of time so I think that this is all very natural what isn't natural is how we have the ecosystem that this creates and how we fit into that, how it dominates us to, to that extent. And I don't know in history if there's ever been such a time where we've lived in such a concentrated um, technological world where through one device, there is a whole entire universe present within that mm. from, um, you, can, you could almost say WhatsApp is a village. Like WhatsApp is a village of people who you, communicate with instagram is a town facebook might be a city and twitter might be a continent you know but these are all little worlds that you can go into talk with people engage you know about their life you know what they like eating you know what like their patterns their habits this is very familiar mm. it's as real as this you see what i'm saying oh, yeah. and and i think that when something becomes that real in a virtual world you end up thinking Fuck, we live in, in there's, a dual, there's a dual reality here. Because for me, what happens on that phone is as real and as serious as what happens in this conversation. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, this is this is another thing that I'm actually, I was saving this for some, a, a different guest actually, but it seems like you just brought it up. I'm actually going to just say, say it to you. But like through the vastness of the internet, I mean, 
in social media itself, it we are we are really playing like are we really playing ourselves or are we playing like a character or a, a social media made character in which we want to being perceived? I mean, this character that we're playing is seems to be more real than the actual human that we're actually being perceived to be. Hmm. I, yeah, I've, I've thought about this before. Um, the performance of the self uh, and how social media is highly performative in whichever way. Uh, suits the medium and suits the status quo and the kind of ethos of that medium. But what I think is important to remember here is that there is no such thing as a singular self. Like we're many different people. When you go into a job interview, you're a different person from when you're sitting around your mum's on a Sunday watching the football. Like that's not, you're not, that's not the same person. If you go on a date, if you go to the cinema, if you're, I don't know, in a place of worship, like we become different people all the time. So we're able to perform in multiple ways. And I think what social media does is it exacerbates that tendency. Mm -hmm. It takes that want or that need or the ability to perform, perform self. And it starts to create almost like a parody or an alter ego of that. It doesn't mean that it's not genuine. Mm -hmm. It just means that on Twitter, you can be this person who you actually are, but in a much more heightened, uh, dramatic way. And on Instagram, you can be vacuous, you can be superficial, you can be posy, you can be, hey, look at me, yeah. because it's a different, it's a visual format. So I think depending on if it's text format, like Twitter, or depending if it's a visual like Instagram, it brings out different sides of our personality. Yeah. But that doesn't say that it's disingenuous or that it's contrived. Mm. It just means that we're multiple people anyway. Yeah, it's funny, Chris brought that up there, because I, um, I had that same thought in my head where I was, um, I was actually driving, I was driving to work. And I was actually questioning myself how much of me is really me. Because I was walking down, I was looking at all the advertisements and seeing all the people like wearing certain types of clothes. I mean, I, I'm aware of myself that I wear certain types of clothes or whatever it is. Or the, or the way I carry out my actions, the sort of the, even the people I look to or podcast I listen to. Mm. And how much of that is actually being given to me instead of me actually really finding it. I mean, this, this is, <laughs> I don't even know if I should go here, but this is going deep. But in the sense of like, to the conversation of consciousness like what is consciousness I mean I keep asking I don't know if you you, you think this deep I mean you might but I definitely do and um, I'm asking the question is like see if we see if we are because I'm at, I, I don't know but I'm at the understanding where I believe that I am just like this reality here is just a something that I'm playing in now I'm just like my body I'm just conscious I'm just a consciousness a conscious vessel and this body's just a, a vessel for the consciousness mm. might be wrong but that's like what I, f I feel at the minute anyway with my belief system and um I'm actually thinking that does the does the consciousness like come into this world and then we are so like the, our consciousness is completely blank and then you become you become Anthony you become Chris I become Dan and then do all the influences on top of that like the like who your mom and dad are who your brother and sister are whoever all the interactions that we have in our life is that actually does that actually make us or is it the consciousness itself that actually is that, is, that, is that shining through anyway? Yeah. That's deep. It's deep thoughts. I don't even know where I went I think, that. I mean, I can kind of give a, a rough answer. I don't know how rigorous it, it will be, but I think the problem that we have when thinking about consciousness is we perceive it as a noun as opposed to a verb. I think consciousness is something that we do. I think it's actually linguistic discrepancy in the sense where if it was called consciousnessing, it would make more sense as if it like a like it's just something that we do as opposed to something that we are. Yeah. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that when you understand that consciousness is something that human is a, a byproduct of the, of human intelligence, 
it's an offshoot of that things start to make more sense now you can get into genetic coding you can get into neurology and look at the way that the, the brain acquires information how it stores things um, from predisposed information like language and things like this that already have uh, genetic coding within the brain from mm -hmm. the moment you're born to the moment that you learn about cultural tastes, patterns, uh, what to fear, what not to fear, what makes you happy, what doesn't. These things are, I believe, primarily environmental. Like they're conditioned by the society that you live in. And that's proven by the fact that they shift from culture to culture, um, hemisphere to hemisphere. There's, there's different patterns. Mm -hmm. And that they're in a state of flux. Like they do change. Like we just said, that who we are now yeah. might not be who we are at 60. Yeah. yeah, you've definitely thought about that. <laughs> yeah. do, do you actually? Um, well, I was actually something else I want to ask you is touch on as well. Because I want to, I know, that sort of uh, turning away from bit from poetry there, which it doesn't matter. But anyway, I just want to ask you. I mean, what do you think is actually the place of poetry in modern day society now? Like, how do you see that playing out in the future? Again, I think it's one of these. It's one of the question that gets asked often to poets, and, and this idea of necessity, uh, of, of vitality, of importance. I think that poetry historically has always been there, uh, and, and it's always going to be here. Whether it's going to be as popular as film or music, I don't know. Um, like I say, there's been big successes recently of commercial poets, pop poets writing very accessible. Um, resonating stuff I think it's as important as any of the art forms I don't think it should be distinguished or, or kind of separated from the two I think that it is it is there and people need it people enjoy it I enjoy it um, and and I think that I my only personal gripe is that it's not taken seriously enough within society and poets aren't rewarded for the work that they do, the hours that they put in, the, the time that they spend developing the craft. Monetarily, they're not rewarded how I feel they should be, but that's only because society doesn't value it from a monetary perspective in the way that they should. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got, we got the same kind of response when we did it with um, Sully Brooks as well. Oh, yeah, yeah I and mean, he was a fantastic interviewer yeah, as well. Really and um, he both had, he had like a similar message as well where he was like, I think you get the same vibe where it was like there could be something so much more for poetry in modern day society and like if only like people were a bit more understanding of the craft the dedication the work that was actually put into it people understand it more but I think that goes with everything really I mean if we just like look outside we can see like a massive building we'll take like no under credit and understand about how much time it took to design it build it um, think about it like the long hours what somebody actually thought yeah. to actually design each and every single room to the precise specific I mean it is like a concept with like everything really like I mean right when we watch like um, a football match you actually see that um, you'll see the players and it'll just be on like a 90 minute thing and you could just be watching it and then all of a sudden you I have a realizations of like how the long hours of like the process of the training for the players, the story of like how their minds actually developed, actually become a footballer, become become like um, a stronger individual, and how they have the pressure of like fifty thousand people yeah. watching. I mean, the whole concept is in all walks of life. I mean, this podcast itself, we don't un like nobody understands the hard work, the dedication, the commitment it all takes to put in just for something like this. And this is why yeah, for sure. this is why this is. 
I think that the, the, the issue is is that there's people that do put in a lot of. I mean, I think everyone puts in work with something that is a craft. You have to. It's a lifetime's devotion. Like you have to constantly keep at it. I think that what upsets people is when you're still broke, when you're you know on the breadline, but this is your job, and your job the the your, the limits to where you can go with it from from the sense of. Um, from from a valued sense, from a money sense, is limited, and I think that's when people think, "Hmm, I don't know how long I can kind of keep this going before I've got to get another job, or before I've got to do something that you know pays better." Because that's the harsh truth: is that poetry is very niche, and unless you're doing work in schools, at universities, as a, as a lecturer, as an educator, it's very difficult to get by just off poetry. You need to be doing all the poets that I know teach everyone teaches in some capacity um and if and those that don't are usually able to live outside of london off the money that they make um off poetry but you know everyone's at a different stage in their writing within your airport reading things like that what what are some sort of things that you actually like focusing on now you trying to like highlight any certain issues are you just talk are you just doing what we said before where you just sort of more it's more just about whatever comes through through you no, I think that I'm definitely being a lot more selective. I'm trying something different this time. I'm working on the book at the moment that I'm kind of halfway through. Um, I'm trying to have it finished for this year uh, called Born to a Siren. I started it uh, last, at the beginning of last year. So um, it was kind of the idea behind it. Well, I, have, I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about poetry and you know, what we do and the themes that we tackle and blah, blah. And he said to me mid-conversation, what, what I've realized with you is that you never actually, you very rarely do you talk about yourself. You talk about society and you comment a lot and you've got a lot of opinions and you make some points for your poetry and it's very big, like the epic poems, like the quiet ones, the ones about you like what you think about before you go to sleep they don't exist and it made me realize that i mean obviously i've had that conversation with myself but no one's ever kind of spelt it out for me and it made me realize that i'm scared that i'm afraid to kind of excavate myself in that way or to go into my own mind and my past which has elements that I'm not comfortable writing about or thinking about or don't want to share with members of the public. And I'm like, well, that needs to be addressed. So that's what I'm doing with this new one is I'm trying to kind of... Oh, that's interesting how you recognise that within yourself. I think that's beautiful how actually... So, so I think as well, I think it's beautiful how you can learn that understanding from many different things. I know a lot of people, like your friend told you that, but maybe that was something you already knew deep within inside. Anyway, you just weren't sort of, like you said, you were just maybe scared to show that side That's of you. That's all it was. And I still am. Like now when I sit down to write, it's terrifying and it's not nowhere near as enjoyable. And I don't mean enjoyable in a like yeah, kind of, you know, uh, a revelry kind of way, but I mean it in the sense of it's, it's, it's really difficult man like to to go into yourself and to have to think about an experience that you really don't like and find the poetics in that Mm. and find the language for it find a a construct yeah it's really it's terrifying it really is and it's i've become plagued with a new kind of anxiety and it's almost feels a bit this is PTSD. Yeah. Like that's what this is. Like I'm kind of triggering myself deliberately 
to try and get these poems and I don't know how healthy yeah. that is do you do you do you find that because um, within what you just said there as well it made us actually think of a question I mean do you still find that language to a certain degree has its like limit has its barriers and massively yeah that's yeah. why you distort language the moment that you break association within language language becomes uh, infinite the possibilities become infinite and yeah. I think when you when you're using language in a fixed way like we are now then sure it's very limiting but when you distort those interpretations when you break things apart to put them back together um, and but the language can still cohere in an abstract way then you're uh, reinventing language you're progressing it yeah I'll just we'll, we'll wrap it up there anyway thanks so much for your time honestly no it's been really yeah, cool thanks cool conversation it's really been really good meeting you as well and sort of digging into your mind because you have really got a really interesting methodical mind yeah no, it's, it's a good chat man it's a good chat yeah I really enjoyed that yeah I did good that. vibes thanks so much for listening to the podcast it really means a lot to us like, to me and Chris that every week you would tune in and listen to the podcast and as well we had such a great time speaking talking to Anthony really was a podcast that me and Chris had wanted to have for a long time and it was so great to be able to sit down with in person and have a conversation with this guy for an hour such such cool time but anyway if you want to check out more from Anthony all the links to all his social and all his work is in the show notes at the Send podcast website and also as well if you want to show some love and support the podcast and like I said in the intro we are planning on taking this to another level. We want to do more in-person elements. We want to travel more and get some more interesting guests. We also want to add a video element. And if you want to see us do this and want to help us take this podcast to the next level, we'd really love it if you could just check out our Patreon page and become a Patreon member and sign up for any reward tier. It really would mean the world to me and Chris. And you would be helping us really create something epic with this. So anyway, we love you all and thanks so much for tuning in and listening to the podcast. It really means a lot to us. And to play this podcast out as well, I'm going to play I'm going to play a poem by Anthony. He had so many different ones I wanted to choose from. He had a one called I Am Not A Poet, which is absolutely amazing. If you want to check that out, go to his YouTube channel. He's got so many others, but the one I went for, which I thought was very suited for this podcast, is a piece called The Master's Revenge. So anyway, enjoy this piece by Anthony Naxagoro, The Master's Revenge. Enjoy. Peace. There will be revenge, but it will be different from yours. It won't involve blood or murder or deception. It won't turn sophisticated people to rubble, then call them underdeveloped, primitive and backwards. It won't need military budgets, fear, prejudice or gender repression. It will be simple, uncomfortable and absolute. It will present itself calmly. There will be no screams, there will be no protests, just this. You are the owner of all energy needed to destroy or create worlds. Within you lies the peace of Akhenaten, the vision of Imhotep. We can go further, the first messiah. You are the writer of knowledge, the keeper of truth. It's looking at you through the stones, the history of the mountains and the DNA of the earth. You're there. This wicked narrative is new. It's evil and unwell. A thousand years ago, you were teaching them. They were lost, barbaric, never knowing the evolution of language, of culture, the influence you had, you still have, you must have because you're far from dead. Listen to the speakers, the 
knowers, the ones who tell you to open pages and find yourself there. Reinvent the past, pay the oppressor little mind. Little mind fears genius because it knows your story. It knows about the old kingdom and the middle periods from Moorish Spain to Muslim medicine. It knows about African mathematicians and the stone can of the circles of Nabta Playa. It knows. That's why it denies. That's why it tells you to kill yourself. Death has many faces. If something is made ill, why swallow it? Don't accept it. Renounce it and go back to before the chattel, the division and the genocide, before the white Jesus, before the crusades and the foreign religions that came with priests and swords. Discover the hidden world because history is self-serving, self-fulfilling. Look in the prisons, look in the armies, look in the places filled with the broken, the destitute, the trampled on the us but not them. Look and see what happens when you become apathetic, when revenge is just for radicals, when you believe the story they tell you, when your only weapon is a gun, when your only hope is a fantasy, when your knowledge is obsolete, when your woman is a bitch, when your brother is a threat, and your oppressor is your master, your standard, your ideal. Don't ask for mercy, it won't be given, lock it off, leave it there, it's dead, it's done, the damage consecrated, the sickness, it doesn't work. So start again, with justice. When they ask you for a beginning, teach them about the Grimaldi, about Menes in the First Dynasty. When they ask you about women, speak to them of Isis, of Hatshepsut and Cleopatra. When they ask you about European languages, refer them to Coptic and Western Semitic tongues. Explain how 50% of the Greek lexicon is comprised of a non-Indo-European language. Give examples when they ridicule you for saying in it. Claiming the word as being Jamaican Patois, let them know that it's a contraction of isn't it, which is a contraction of is it not, which is English and not Patois, is it not. When they ask you about war and peace, inform them that the word war comes from the old English where, meaning to bring into confusion. Mention the golden age of Egypt. Communicate the fact that civilizations which have experienced the greatest periods of peace have been matriarchal. Say that twice. Include the fact that 70% of Native Americans did not ever wage war with each other. Refer them to conquest, sexual violence and American Indian genocide by Andrea Smith. Keep close to mind the Haitian Revolution, to Saint Levature and Dessaline. If they interject calling you Afrocentric or a conspiracy theorist, reply with these names. Volney, Gerald Massey, Martin Bernal, Bouval and Brophy. Continue. Discuss human nature, how we remain products of our environment, how we mirror what we see, how certain genes are activated or deactivated in our childhood, determining who we become later. Explain what you mean by white supremacy as a political tool to divide and undermine those that don't fit the aesthetic. Discuss Thomas Spence and the making of the English working class. Look at degenerate families in the US and Anthony Stokes. Speak of Palestine with courage. Declare that before the 15th of May 1948, Zionists had already expelled 250,000 Palestinians. Emphasize that people are not born bad, that before capitalism and feudalism, communalism was how we lived, not primitive but equal. Do not negate women. There is more to feminism than her physical appearance. You may wish to talk about Simone de Beauvoir, Bell Hooks and Angela Davis. Then, poetry. The spoken word that predates the written word, oral tradition, art and storytelling. Speak until the sun has risen and set a thousand times. Wear the crown that doesn't need a stolen jewel to shine. Assure them that you are made from love, that you speak from love because that is from where you were born. Play them a song, read them a haiku, teach them how to dance. Many will laugh at you, many will brand you insane, yet when has madness ever really mattered here? Some will listen, some will stay, and you will grow into friends, into solidarity, into the forever we dream about. So treasure your woman, treasure your man, because we're all we have. Peace is the master's revenge. So stand in the present, draw for the future, and shoot 
with all the ammunition of the past. <laughs>